what I'd like to open up as a, a line of inquiry tonight be to take a fresh look at retreat life, presenting a somewhat different frame of reference to look at retreats. Um, turned out this is a very difficult subject for me. Uh, not that I've been rehearsing all day at all, but I looked around and there are a lot of people who've been coming here for 20 more years to this retreat. You know, for goodness sakes, they've heard everything I have to say. even about this subject, especially about this subject. You begin every retreat for the last 10 years this way. That's true, isn't it? And then I could hear a a defensiveness in my own mind. It's not just with other people. You start listening in on your mind, it's hilarious, sometimes quite humiliating. I mean, but a sustained way, not just catch a glimpse here and there. And then I heard a somewhat stern voice say, So what if they've heard it? They haven't done it yet anyway. (laughs) It's good for them. Can you hear in the back? Some some signal. What? Is it better? Sounds a little bit, is it? It is? I can't tell. It is. Can everyone hear? Then I even, the, <clears throat> my mind even uh, fell to even lower levels of degradation. <laughs> when I was saying, yeah, they've heard it and uh, it's good for them. Not only that, look, on a retreat, no matter what you say, will be appreciated. Uh, and this is a secret from Dharma teaching. I'm revealing it, but um, retreats are, in show business language, the easiest house to play because you're so hungry for anything after a day of stillness. Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Ha 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 ha. There's nothing to it. Uh, And if you're a cook, this is the place to cook. People love whatever you make. So I'm going to give it a a go. Uh, But my uh, vanity is still alive and well. I'm going to try and come at it in a slightly different way. Perhaps more for my own entertainment. I don't know. I like to, you know how sometimes there are films, uh, it seems more and more these days, where they'll have uh, multiple uh, situations which seem unrelated, and then as the film unfolds, you see how they're all quite related and influencing each other. Crash one of them, or, you know, there are a bunch of them. Uh, Let me give you three anecdotes. Uh, One... um, Many years ago, I was watching a high rope act uh, by the Flying Wallandas. Wallandas? Not sure. Wallandas? Yeah. See how long they've been around? 
that act is long gone. And you'll see why in a moment. <laughs> At any rate, this is a, uh, a whole family that would do the high wire act. And I had seen an interview with the father who was originated this high wire, who would walk on a very high wire. Um, and in the interview, he said, for me, uh, all of life is on the high wire. The rest is just waiting. That's, the, that's when he was most alive, just on the high wire. I thought, wow, pretty specialized. It's even more than being an ear, nose, and throat specialist. You know? uh, and then who would know, a few months later, uh, I'm chomping on a sandwich and on TV, is a live uh, uh, showing him he was advised not to. This is in, in uh, Latin America somewhere. He was advised not to walk across the high wire. The winds were, t uh, were terrible, very, very strong. And he insisted on it. And so I'm eating my sprouts and uh, whatever sandwich, avocado, organic, and chomping into it. And here goes the flying Wolanda, the, the man who originated the act. And against all recommendations, starts walking the high wire. And you watch him blown to his death, literally. Wow. And so that's one anecdote. I hope they all come together. Any praying people here? Good. I'm going to need some help tonight. Um, the second anecdote is many, many years ago. Um, there was no IMS, so it's got to be more than 30 years ago. Uh, I watched a Zen, a Zen master who was also an archer. Uh, he had practiced, uh, I think it's Kyudo. Doug, how would you pronounce it? Kyudo. And so there were, I don't know, 100 or more people. We were all watching, and there's an elaborate ceremony, and the target is put up, and uh, he has a tremendous uh, robes and something on his arms and hands and chanting, and uh, it went on. It was quite a preparation. We were all at the edge of our seat waiting. And he was small, uh, Japanese, very strong, pulled the arrow, this huge uh, bow, pulled it back and held it. And we were all just breathless. And finally, just aimed it up in the air and shot it up in the air. Second anecdote. Um, the third one is my niece, my sister's daughter. Uh, she's the only one in the family who was at all interested in what I was doing since she was a little girl. She really wanted to know what meditation was, and I would tell her. And the, literally, the only one in my entire family who really cared. They would ask me and then space out as I started to answer. And that was good, because it took me years to get him to that place. <laughs> and so uh, she, uh, she was very well-rounded in many ways, uh, very academic, uh, involved in a lot of different things, and loved to play the violin. And so she started talking about it, and uh, she was asking me about meditation. And I told her about the value of not being distracted, about being one with what you do be totally present, fully 
just do what you're doing. This wasn't about the violin. And she listened, and she often would put it, try to put into practice something that came out of our discussions. And then I saw the next time, she said, Uncle Larry, it really helped a lot. I, I played my violin. First of all, I saw how distracted I am. No matter how good the music is, a lot of the time I'm really thinking about other things. And people approve and all of that, but I'm there maybe three-quarters of the time, if, if I'm lucky, half the time. Uh, I said, oh. He said, and this last time, I did it, and when I saw that, and I really paid attention, and I was much more attentive than I've ever been. There were many fewer distractions. And people just loved the music, and I could see it made them very, very happy. So I asked, is that it? Anything else? Yeah, no, the music was better, and they were very happy. That's it? I said, well, what else is there? You know, okay, so those three. Let's work our way back. Uh, sometimes in Dharma circles, you hear a phrase, the, the curse of fragmentation. That is, we can get all involved in one small slice of life uh, at the expense of everything else. And that's the only, that's the flying Wolandas, Mr. Wolanda. Uh, so specialized that uh, the first casualty, of course, is usually wisdom. Our judgment is damaged because we don't really value anything else. That's what we care about. And it can be most anything. So this kind of specialization, sometimes highly acclaimed by the world, even well paid, and even can become world famous as a result of it. And yet, uh, why the curse of fragmentation? Well, some of it was the dramatic end of Mr. Wolanda. But it's a narrowing down of the mind of all the, the possible f richness of life into a very uh, specific way in which life can be lived. Uh, the, the, uh, the archer, what he was saying, and I didn't get it at first, I spoke to him later on, he said, what I was trying to say is the target is everywhere. Okay. Um, wow, deep, deep man. The, the target is everywhere. And then my niece was starting to understand that and applied it to the violin. But she left one thing out. That is, she saw that once she was more attentive, the quality of the music improved. And also that people, of course, enjoyed it more. And when I said, is there anything else? And she said, what? What else could there be? What she left out was the quality of her life. It just never occurred to her that practicing the violin or playing the violin and being fully present was a much more fulfilling way to be alive. Matthew, in the introductory remarks yesterday, referred to a Chinese teaching that uh, when you're distracted, let's say whatever it is you're doing, they call that killing life. Part of you is on the activity and another part is somewhere else. And when you're fully present, they call that giving life to life. Well, which life is it that you're killing? Which life is it that you're giving life to? It's our own. Now, maybe other people benefit from it or don't. But first and foremost, uh, the quality of our life has everything to do with the quality of our consciousness. Okay, so now what does this have to do with taking a fresh look at retreat life? Um, 
Many years ago, I guess everything is many years ago now, when you get to be a certain age. A certain age means old fogey. You just say a certain age. Um, I did lots of long retreats here and in Asia. Loved it. Valued it tremendously. Still do. Um, being in silence for extended periods of time, all these forms, um, did it in many different places with many different teachers. And then in the early days of, uh, of IMS, uh, participated. And then I started to get to see something uh, one time. I started to realize that uh, if you're really smitten with the meditation bug, the retreat bug, that's where you can become like the flying Wolandas. Uh, because if you're just casual about it, I just want to calm down a little bit. I'm not interested in all this awakening and all that highfalutin stuff I read in the books. Uh, you're safe. It's all right. You'll calm down. It's okay. Uh, it's when you really fall in love with this stuff, you have to be careful. Because what I saw was that formal practice, sitting, came to be thought of as it. That is the practice. And at the end of every retreat, without exception, people would say, well, daily life is just as important as what we've been doing here. But then the, the language gave it away. The language would be something like, now we're going back to the real world. Or staff. I don't know if staff still does this. would talk about when they would have time to sit, uh, uh, take time off from there their job working here at the center, they would say, and now I'm going into yogi land. Uh, so, okay, so the real world is out there. This is yogi land. Uh, so what is this that we're practicing at? If the real world is out there, is this Disneyland? I mean, uh, to me, so here's a different model. Because I think this is in a lot of spiritual traditions, sacred and profane. Uh, worldly, the holy life, and worldly life. Um, a lot of these kind of opposites thinking, where we split off life and decide, even though all these forms are conventional, there's nothing necessarily holy in the form. We can call it holy and walk around as if it is, but it isn't unless it is. And it is, depending on how you relate to what we call life. So what I started to see was that we valued sitting and walking and everything in the silence. First of all, you have to understand, I don't know if things have changed. Probably not so much. Most of us who came to these retreats were refugees from daily life. I've had enough of those lunatics out there, all of them, with their you know arguing and conflict, and they don't behave the way I want them to, and my children don't listen to me, and uh, I have to work with these people who are disagreeable, and on and on. And uh, I don't know what I want to do, but I know what I'm doing isn't right, but maybe the people who are in relationship want to get out of it, and the ones who are out of it want to get in it. Uh, just get me off to IMS, to Barry, and get me to a monastery and get it over with. It's like a field hospital in combat. <laughs> you know. MASH, you know MASH? Dated? No one ever. How many people never heard of MASH? Oh, but they have reruns, that's why. I was trying to use it to date everyone, but it's, that's not good. Um, 
So what would happen is you'd come here, and if you get really, you can get really good. Just take the breath alone. Really good at it. Uh, well, you can just by if you stay with it, it's lawful. It's a scientific law. It's been done for thousands of years. As you become more continuous in your ability to stay with the breathing, the th thinking starts to subside, fall away, go into abeyance, and you enter into very, very peaceful, joyful state. And if you get really good at it, uh, you sink into that state. There are no problems there. And you enter into a lovely cocoon of safety, of concentrated safety. There are no relatives, there are no bosses, there are no children. There, you know, it's just, ah, oh, finally. Because the outer stillness is one thing, but the inner stillness is something else. Now, this is not wisdom, by the way, but it is a very welcome escape from wisdom. Because there's a silence that comes from, from wisdom which is not vulnerable. This one is a high-class escape, and yet it has tremendous value as well. So, of course, you want to do more of that. And so we would run home. It took me a while to catch on to myself. And let's say we'd sit three months here or four months, however long it was, and then run home and our minds would be uh, concerned with how do I earn money to get back to the next three-month retreat. In the meantime, it's like the flying Willendas. You know, all life is just sitting on the cushion. The rest is just, I don't know what, earning a living so I can get back to my cushion. And you do a little bit of what we call daily life practice, sit 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes, ambitious, maybe 40 minutes, and so forth. And then finally, we get to, to Mecca, you know, bow down and get here. And it's great, because you can just park all that other stuff where you left it, leave it there. Okay. And I started to get to know some of my fellow retreatants. And then when I started teaching here, I got to know them in a somewhat different way. Um, and I saw that it is possible to become very, very happy here with formal meditation. And even though we talk about integration, now we go home and we'll integrate what we've learned here into daily life. That sounds sensible and intelligent. But if you listen carefully, that means there are two different things going on. We're integrating something that goes on here, which is special, and then in that so-called real world out there. Now, the truth is, something that goes on here is special. It's quite valuable. I haven't, personally, I've not changed at all. If anything, I value it even more. The problem is when you dip it in bronze and make a statue out of it, and make it stand for your life, unless you're cut out for that. I mean, there are people who are just born contemplatives. They might be monks or nuns, or you don't have to be. And if you're happy living this life and just really staying out of all that I just mentioned, that's different. But overwhelmingly, most of us go back to family, job, school, and so forth, earning a living, etc. We do. We're not going to be monks or nuns. And we're not going to sit. Uh, there's a limit to how many three-month retreats you do. At a certain point, I, th I found that it was about five years. I'm not enlightened. I'm much better. Yeah, things have improved. Suddenly, three months starts becoming three days. You know, three, oh, Let's do a three-day retreat. Uh, so I saw there was a, a certain danger, and that's what I meant by, it's, we can call it the flying Willenda uh, syndrome, where you, even though you hear that daily life is really precious, we've got to bring the practice into daily life, true enough, in effect, 
um, that's not what we value down deep. What we value is sitting. That's first and foremost. And at a special place, either in our home or here. And it is special. And then again, it isn't. But it is. But it isn't. Is that too deep where you get what I'm... In other words, of course it's special. But in a certain way, so is everything else. So what I saw was yogi land, work life, real world. I don't know what, uh, what this is. Um, these are all manufactured in the mind. Now, is it possible to have a different model? And I didn't make this model up. It has existed for thousands of years. It's just not been a majority one. And what it is, is prior to any of these forms, there's just life. This is just a slice of life. And each form of life each is a situation of some sort. And in that situation, there's a certain intelligence built into it, a certain sense of direct, uh, um, directive that's in it. What, what's correct action here? If you're driving a car, then drive. If you're cooking, cook, and so forth. Okay, so when we're here, this is what we do. And this is unique in that we temporarily do drop most of our responsibilities. And we have uh, like-minded people that support us and, uh, and so forth. I think most of you have done many retreats, and you know the value of it. I don't have to convince you. New people, it's for you to discover. It may or may not be for you. The only way you'll find out is by which is what you're doing. You're giving it a try. And so if you have a model that, what the pra that practice and life are inseparable, then when you come here, you give everything you have to here. Why? Because you are here. Or whatever we encounter, that's our life. So to go to my niece, uh, the, the meditation instructions that she listened so carefully to were not about the violin, but she applied it to the violin. Fine. Now, can that be applied? Uh, what she left out was her own fulfillment, that it, it's not just being a great musician and pleasing others. It's also, uh, if done in a certain way, the most humble activity, what might seem the most mundane, routine activity, uh, can actually be a, a vehicle for awakening. And uh, what, it, what, I, what I'd like to begin to suggest this evening, we'll get it started, is that if you start off the retreat, we're just beginning, and understand that, that for example, another uh, uh, dichotomy is daily life and intensive practice. Are they the same or different? Daily life is what goes on when we get home. This is intensive practice. Well, is there no daily life here? Do we not go to the bathroom? Do we not eat? Uh, and then we have a number of, well, uh, there's no social life here. Uh, no one, there's no speaking. That's baloney. There's, first of all, there's always a criminal subculture in every retreat I've had. <laughs> We don't know what's going on in people's heads. We have this Vipassana romance thing, and there's more. You know, and depending on the, on the conventions or the rules set up by the retreat, uh, for example, how wonderful the sangha is. Not always. Sometimes the sangha can be a real pain in the butt. People irritate us. Why does he wear two different socks? He's been wearing this. 
been wearing the same t-shirt for three days now. Okay, but with a Dharma attitude, no matter what happens, it becomes a vehicle for liberation. In this sense, life exists to be lived and to liberate us. It's not that we cheapen life by seeing it as just a means to something greater than life, because there is nothing, you can't separate it. So that dichotomies like worldly and sacred, all that, that disappears. If it's done wholeheartedly, whatever it is you're doing, it's all of it. And when you hear, by all means, here, correct action is maintaining the silence, uh, following the conventions that have been established so we can all live together. If overall, of course, it's, it's wonderful to have the support of people who are moving in the same direction as us. Obviously, it's, it's uh, very, very helpful. And if they don't behave properly, or the teachers uh, say something you don't like, can we, instead of doing our old way, can we break some new ground? And the new ground would be to see whatever happens to you as an opportunity to get free by be, becoming aware of your reactions. So if somebody hasn't changed their T-shirt and it's bothering you, let them worry about their hygienic standard. What's going on? And so we can use whatever happens to us to liberate ourselves from a piece of slavery which we've imposed ourselves. Now, there have been some many fine teachers that have come through here. And I know uh, that Matthew, Doug, and I, we're, we're okay. We're not too bad. And we do our best. But the best teacher here, for some people, is the toilet. Do you get a yogi job clean the toilet? Not for everyone, because some people are happy toilet cleaners. <laughs> you know, they just, they look like, uh, one came into an interview some years ago, it was, you know, these old communist propaganda films, the happy workers, you know, threshing wheat and, you know, the <laughs> successful communism and social, and uh, everyone is just so happy in the factories and in the wheat, and God, why can't we be communists and be happy like that? Because <laughs> it wasn't true, that's why. Okay, but mostly... People don't like it. Mary and I, we're not going to go into it because that's over. I'm sure there's new stuff we can work on. We call it the Toilet Sutra, right? Yeah. Uh, people have worked through incredibly deep stuff because they really didn't want to clean a toilet. There was an oral surgeon here. That means he's a dentist plus. He just refused to do it. <laughs> Would not do it. It was degrading. I said, then you have to go home. You can't be on the retreat. He says, you're kidding. Come on. You wouldn't make me go home just because I don't want to clean the toilet. I, I would, and I honestly meant it. Do you know that I f it took me years to find out that people would come here many hours before the retreat so they could sign up for, there used to be a library where the, uh, where the office is now, and who could get the job dusting off the books? <laughs> you, and who could not get pots or, you know, or work in the boiler room there, you know, cleaning the dishes? you know, with bandanas around your head if it gets hot and all that, and it takes you longer, and you see your friends, they have a 10-minute job, and they're out having a nice time walking around the loop, and you're still uh, slaving away, cleaning up the pots and all that. And so people would just come here and just pick the easy jobs, and if you were, didn't know the system, and you got me late, you're on pots, you're on the toilet. I didn't know that. I assumed that it was first come first, so we changed it. And now it's the luck of the draw, whatever... We're not trying to torture anyone. 
unless there's a health reason. And so the toilets have been a fantastic teacher, but that's only because, by the way, the oral surgeons stayed, they did fine, and Mary did beautifully. That's why there's a whole sutra. It's going to appear as an ad part of the, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. It'll be, a, it'll be called the Toilet Sutta. It's not an insult to the Buddha, is it? The Buddha, she was following your instructions, Buddha. That's why I'm using it. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is what is needed is a dramatic change in attitude and frame of reference. How we look at things and a willingness to learn. We mentioned that earlier. We're going to be emphasizing that. Sometimes we're emotionally exhausted, and we come to practice, oh, just tell me what to do. Don't ask me to try to learn and inquire and look around and investigate all those terms. I've been do- Just tell me what to do, in, out, in, out, and then I'll be perfect, right? Wrong. It doesn't work that way. Just lifting, moving, place, and then I'll be perfect. Wrong. It's not mechanical. It's not uh, putting together... Uh, assembling a vacuum cleaner. This is your life we're talking about, each one of us. And so I'm assuming, and I think it's a safe assumption, that if you've come here on a beautiful day, and what promised perhaps it'd be a, a week that has some beautiful days, you could be elsewhere, that you, for whatever reason, you care about the quality of your life. And that's why you're here. And so I feel all stops can be pulled out. We can push, because that's why you're here. And what we're trying to accomplish each in our own way, will be, I hope I'm doing it tonight, is to get you to take a fresh look at how you live, how you actually live. A retreat is a wonderful um, school. Sometimes in Asia it is called a school. It's a school in that uh, the possibilities of tremendous learning go on here, but it's not through reading books. And it's not even really hearing these teachings. The teachings are pointing us, but it comes from your willingness to learn from your own experience. When the time comes to sit, just sit and do the walking. So it's not like that's not important. It's tremendously important. But a fair amount of your day is also dressing, undressing, eating, etc. whatever it is. Relationships, if there are any, see it. Reactions to people. So that everything that happens here, and you have the luxury of it being safe, quiet, minimal responsibility. You have your little yogi job. That's not too much, really, for most of us, unless you're on pots or the toilet. (laughs) Um, For example, you can slow down eating. You can slow it down and use it as an opportunity to take a fresh look at how you eat. You say, well, come to it for the first time. I'm not going to tell you what uh, the Buddha gives some advice. I I think I'll uh, touch upon a certain uh, sutta of the Buddha's. I'm not going to go into it too much this evening, maybe hardly at all, but just to launch us into it. Not so much because it's about a diet of an obese king, but because what this and other examples that we can use, what they're pointing to is that Nothing is trivial or unimportant. And yet, our starting point is that we have uh, unexamined, often, hierarchies. Like, can we, look, I don't want to do the, uh, the toilets. Give it to, I'm an oral surgeon. I'm a brain surgeon. I'm the president. Give, give it to someone else. 
Someone who's come here doesn't have a, all those degrees and doesn't earn as much money and hasn't gone to all this school, they won't mind. They're used to that. I'm not cleaning the toilet. Those are all, if you have the right attitude, that's the whole thing. The toilet is just the toilet. Any of you who have practiced in Japan at some of the Zen centers, when I first got there, I was astonished. People, the monks were bowing to everything, bow to their cushion. I saw someone bow to the toilet. Honestly. But what they are saying is that everything is contributing. Everything is valuable in life. Everything has a role to play. And the training is, uh, whatever you encounter in that moment, that's what your life is in that moment. If it's playing the violin, so be it. Then that's it. If it's sitting, then that's it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with high wire, but if you do it in such a way that it becomes blinding, if you do retreats in such a way that you don't that you use it, remember another point that was mentioned, which we're going to be coming back to again and again, because the learning comes from this, we're learning how to do this, is to not turn away from what is. What is is factual. Right now, as you are looking and listening, some of you may be dis- bored, distracted, some of you are reflecting on a few thoughts, whatever you're doing right now, that's it. That's what your life is right now. Those are the perfect materials to practice with. Couldn't be better. Well, what's so great about it? I'm just uh, bored. But that's what your life is right now, whatever you encounter. Uh, Can you take a fresh look at boredom, your boredom? Can you see whatever else is happening. So it's, uh, it's not just about eating, it's about anything. And it's understanding. Uh, we'll go into more detail at many levels, for example, eating, obvious ones. And then there's some that are not so obvious. The same for any activity. Uh, I'll use some examples from tea ceremony because that's designed uh, to help us with this. Uh, let me um, finish up. I think it's the first time I've finished on time, maybe even a little early, in the history of teaching here. (laughs) What? No, after I read this, I will be. I'm going to read it slowly. (laughs) I can find it. This is from the Donapaka Sutta. King Pasanari goes on a diet. That's the translation of it. Once when the Buddha was living at Savati, King Pasanari of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting, and sat down to one side. The Buddha, discerning that King Pasanari was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. I'm not going to explain it tonight. It's very rich. It's a short sutra. Next time we'll try to bring it to life to show many dimensions to it. Here's what the Buddha says to the king. When a person is constantly mindful, when a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. When a person is constantly mindful, 
and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Now at that time, the Brahmin youth Sudasana was standing nearby, and King Pasanadi of Kosala addressed him, Come now, my dear Sudasana, and having thoroughly mastered this verse in the presence of the Buddha, recite it whenever food is brought to me, and I will set up for you a permanent offering of a hundred kahapanas, whatever that is, must be something, every day. So be it, Your Majesty, Your Majesty the Brahmin youth uh, Sudasana replied to the king. So now this is not training an aversion to food, which would be silly. Uh, it's just at the beginning of every meal to remind him of this verse. Okay. Then the next refrain is, Then King Pasanadi of Kosala gradually settled down to eating no more than a cupful of rice. Don't take that literally. At a later time, when his body had become quite slim, King Pasanadi stroked his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this utterance. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways, for my welfare right here and now, and also for in the future. Um, I think I'm going to leave it at that and just make a suggestion. We hinted at it this morning, but... uh, when you start to eat, if you have tea this evening after the last sitting, um, see if you can come to a meal literally with a fresh mind. I'm not uh, promoting some special diet. Don't worry about it. No products that we're selling at the end of the retreat. Uh, quite the contrary. I'm asking you to engage in an, an adventure, self-discovery. Just take a fresh look. Just what happens when I uh, start the process as soon as you want, as soon as you want to, as soon as you get online, and watch the whole process unfold. Watch the body as it tells you what's happening. Watch the mind as it tells you what it thinks is happening. And uh, you slow it down, and we'll go into more detail and why this can be on many levels, many levels and beneficial. The main thing is to come to it with a fresh mind. I'm going to leave you with a uh, one of my favorite exchanges. This is from it's a uh, from ancient China. Titsang asked Fa Yen, "What is your journey?" Fa Yen said, "Going around on pilgrimage." Uh, In case those of you are rather new to all this, pilgrimage would be visiting the holy places of the Buddha, or if you're not in India, uh, places where great masters have monasteries and so forth. Going around on pilgrimage, Titsang said, what do you expect from pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. Titsang said, not knowing is most intimate. Um... That's, it's the famous don't know mind, beginner's mind, not knowing mind. Um, This is not the ignorance that is due to a lack of information. This is a form of intelligence. It means that you're facing a situation without all the accumulated conditionings that we all have from our past, at least attempting to, to 
face a familiar situation, how many times have we sat down to eat, and seeing if we could come to it. Now, intimacy is when there's no separation. Uh, that's when, when the Chinese say, uh, separate when you, let's say you're doing an activity, but you're divided, that's killing life. That means you're not intimate with the activity. There's no separation. And when you're 100% practicing doing whatever it is you, you to be doing at that moment, they call that giving life to life. Of course, it's your own life we're talking about. And so that's what intimacy is, no separation. The practice inevitably must go in that direction. It's not that you strive to be intimate. If you do, that's what's going to separate you and will make the practice joyless. It's that you begin to see uh, how you're not so different from the flying Lorenzas. Um, and that the target is everywhere. How's that? We've got to work my niece into it somehow. <laughs> and not only do you play beautiful music and people love it, but you walk out so happy to be alive. That okay? Leave a. Uh, this is a tough group to play because I think because I, t- I told them that they're an easy group. I think they're getting back at me. All right. Uh, can we do some walking meditation now, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.